Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Nancy Teisted Copel. She is the editor of the Pioneer Girl Project and its series of books, the newest being The Path into Fiction. Prior to this, she was the editor-in-chief of the South Dakota Historical Society Press, where she edited numerous books about South Dakota history and its line of high-quality children's books. In recognition for her lifetime of work in the South Dakota history space, she is a recipient of the Society's Robinson Award for Lifetime Achievement in History. Nancy, welcome to History 605 again. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I think you are the second two-time guest. I think I've had one other person to be on twice, so so it's, uh, well, it's, it's good to have you Thank you. Just to introduce the topic a little bit, this is the third book, although sometimes p- people might think it's the fourth book because of the annotated autobiography itself, but this is the third book in the series of what's known as the Pioneer Girl Project. I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of the background of the annotated autobiography. The Pioneer Girl Project has published four volumes uh, to date and three of which derive directly from Wilder's autobiography, and one that is a book of essays about Wilder. And that book is called Pioneer Girl Perspectives, Exploring Laura Ingalls Wilder. And that came out in 2017. The three-volume series that we're talking about here traces the evolution of Wilder's autobiography from her original handwritten memoir, through all of her various revisions and drafts to her first novel. And so this series begins with Pioneer Girl, the annotated autobiography, edited by Pamela Smith-Hill. That's the first volume in the series. And that was published in 2014. And that one, as we all know, made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. The second book in the series is Pioneer Girl, the Revised Texts. And uh, that appeared in 2021, and it annotates the three typewritten versions of Wilder's original autobiography that Wilder's daughter, novelist Rose Wilder Lane, typed and edited for her mother. And the third and final book in this progression is Pioneer Girl, The Path into Fiction, which is coming out on the 30th of May, and it traces all the manuscript material that leads directly from Wilder's autobiography to 
to her best-selling novel, Little House in the Big Woods. It's based on manuscripts, as all three of these books are. Right. And it begins with Lane's first attempt to distill the Wisconsin chapter of, of um, Wilder's autobiography into what she considered a picture book. Uh, and then it progresses from there. There's a rough draft. It's called Juvenile Pioneer Girl. That's the first manuscript in this book. And then that progresses to When Grandma Was a Little Girl, which is her polished and cleaned up version of this 21-page picture book. Then Wilder enters into the picture and takes these stories, which are her stories, by the way, mm -hmm. and uh, she moves then through, we move through fragments and um, working drafts and her completed manuscript, which was called Little House in the Woods. That's the three volume progression. Started in May of 1930 and it ends in April of 1930. Uh, 32 with the novel Little House in the Big Woods. Okay. So just setting the scene then a little bit, how old is Laura Ingalls Wilder in 1930? She was... She's 63. 63. She turned 63 on February 7th. And her daughter uh, lives in San Francisco and is quite the jet-setting cosmopolitan young woman of the 1920s and 30s. And, she? Yes, she was. In the, she lived in San Francisco in the teens. Uh -huh. and um, was a publicist for the American Red Cross in the 20s, uh, part of the 20s. And she was a newspaper, or not a newspaper, but uh, she wrote shows, short stories for a lot of the popular magazines of the time, McCall's, um, Good Housekeeping, Saturday Evening Post. And she had a number of novels under her belt by 1930 when she began this process. Now, Rose is born into Smith? She was born into Smith in 1886, December of 1886. And uh, Ingalls has moved to Mansfield in when? 1894, I believe. 1894. Yeah, there's 1892, 1893. There's an economic collapse. Farm right. prices just go through the floor. I think there's a grasshopper infestation in the early 1890s too it was pretty a lot of people left in that that time period yeah um, it was uh, a, a huge exodus out of you know the dakota boom was over and it was yeah. an exodus out of uh, this area so rose is making a living though by this time as a professional writer yes and trying to <laughs> trying to yes, yeah did. it's yes. i mean if you're, if you're going to be in that line of work you you're always working on one project after another to keep the revenue train coming, right? That's correct. But they had had, as we uh, kind of talked about in the last on the last time you were on the show and with the previous uh, book in the Pioneer Girl Project, discussing their attempts to get the autobiography published. But now they've determined that this is there's a roadblock and it's never going to happen. What was the event that led them to believe they had to shift well, gears completely? At the beginning of the summer of 1930, uh, Lane's literary agent, who at that time was Carl Brandt, had returned her manuscript saying, it, it's not workable. I can't sell this. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> well, and at that point, Lane, Lane just was not going to give up on this project. Um, she she uh, had 
committed herself to it and she was determined. But she realized at that point she was still trying to edit the 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 large autobiography that covered the first eighteen years of Laura's life. She was still trying to edit that into into something that that could be marketed. So she doesn't give up that project, mm-hmm. but at the same time she recognizes that this is going to be a hard slog, and she needs to reconceive that project. That time she kind of asks her mother, "Well, mom." I don't think she ever called her mom, but yeah. um, she said, what What do you want uh, out of this project? What is it you're, you're angling for? And Wilder, apparently, she writes this in her diary, Lane writes in her diary that Wilder told her she wanted prestige rather than money. Hmm. And at that point, I think Wilder decided, or not Wilder, but Lane decided, okay, if it's not money that she's after so much, let's try something different. And I think she, and what she thought of as different was to do a picture book. But a picture book, as you know, is considerably smaller than an autobiography. So she she decided that she would use the Wisconsin chapter. And this is a chapter that's very well developed in um the pioneer girl memoir because it's she continually talks about the cozy home and she's considering her family from her trundle bed and all the elements of this story are in the autobiography they're all there so lane just starts to she starts by deepening or thickening the background she she starts with the woods and here's the big woods and they're deep dark and still and they're mm-hmm. full of predators and she really sets that scene in a way that Wilder re- hadn't done she focuses that this is our beginning this is where we are and from there then she brings in the predators because that's really what makes the story pop and at that point she recognizes Lane does that oh, the best story about wolves is in the Kansas part of this book. So she starts with the wolves, but she pulls them out of Kansas and puts them in this Wisconsin setting. Okay. And when she does that, she brings along Jack the Bulldog, who becomes a character in the first four or five uh, Little House books. And he had actually, the Ingalls had actually left him behind in Kansas when they left Kansas. This is fiction from the get-go. There was no Jack the Bulldog in Wisconsin. Um, the, there were wolves in Wisconsin, but yeah. the scene that Wilder's telling or that, that Lane brought forward from Wilder's memoir actually happened in Kansas. Okay. So okay. from the get-go, Lane is fictionalizing. Well, maybe I was thinking that there was kind of a blurry line between the fiction and the nonfiction. But, well, there but, is a blurry line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no straight line that you can, right. because this is Wilder's life. These things in one form or another happen to Wilder, but it's, it's what we call autobiographical fiction. It's not a straight telling all right. Um, what Almost. she did from I first I did this, then I did that, then I did this. It's much more 
it's put together in a much more compelling way. Yeah. Well, in that compelling fashion is what drives that order of events then, right? It keeps the story flowing, the narrative powerful, things interesting, moving along. And so they fictionalized it in order to keep that. Lean began that process with this little 21 page manuscript, because what she, what she, she wanted to, the, the second thing that Wilder wanted to do in her storytelling was to preserve her father's stories. And so I think she was trying to preserve her father's stories, not only these set pieces that, that occur in the book, the, the story of her father and the panther or the story of the, you know, the, the uh, pig on the sled. Those, mm-hmm. those aren't the names. They, she gives them names. But uh-huh. it wasn't just these set stories that he told, but he also told I think Wilder's memories of her very early life are actually her father's stories. Okay. So in many ways, you know, this is what she remembers more from the fact that her father told it over and over again. Yeah. And so this is the nature of that Wisconsin chapter and the Kansas chapter before it. These are right. these are more her father's stories than her own memories of what happened. Well, and maybe we can get into a little bit about her relationship with her father or pa, as she would say. In the opening of the book or the acknowledgments or the introduction and so forth, you you kind of helpfully lay out the different roles that are necessary to be played by different people in order to get a book into done and on the show, yeah. right? So I think it might be interesting for our folks, uh, listeners, to for a book to get done, you, an author is necessary. That's kind of obvious. But then there's all these other roles. And you kind of helpfully distinguish that Rose Wilder Lane is becoming a developmental editor. Yes. Uh, wh- what is that? What is a developmental well, A developmental editor is one who works with the concepts, works with the development of the story. Um, and it can start way before, you know, when an author is simply pitching an, an idea to, to an editor or an agent or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're meeting over tea, for example, to talk about, well, how does this story work? Where does it go? Right. Um, who's, who are you t- who's your audience? One uh, editor defined it as a process by which the author and editor work together to determine a workable concept for the book. How are we going to get this book, this idea in your head into a book format? You can, you know, I didn't go into this in the book so much, but obviously Elaine and Wilder have talked about what they're doing or what uh, Lane thinks her mother's doing. And, and, you know, at one point Lane says, or Wilder tells Lane, um, I don't want to write fiction. I don't want to work this over, this big manuscript over into fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, <laughs> Lane had made the developmental decision that that's <laughs> the only way it was going to sell. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so she begins to, to craft this shorter story based on one chapter and one geographical location. And, right. She determines that, okay, Wilder wrote in 
third per, in first person. I did this. I did that. Right. Well, Lane decides that's not going to work. Uh, that yeah. we need to get that into third person. But so Lane's making decisions. She's she decides it's for young readers. Um, she she's making a lot of developmental decisions. And then at a certain point, once her mother has put well. It's a more complicated story than that because there were two developmental editors in this process. Yeah. There was Lane, but there was also the uh, Alfred A. Knopf editor, Marion Fieri. Yes. Who uh, actually switched the whole concept of the book from a picture book to a chapter book for young readers yeah. and pretty much shaped shaped it in in that way and then at that point once fury uh weighs in and tells rose lane more or less how to edit the book because rose had made a number of mistakes in putting this picture book together and so fury steps in and says no this is how this should be this is who it should be written for and this is the book i want to publish oh, okay and at that point, then Fieri begins to correspond with uh, Wilder okay. and Lane, with the two of them. And that's what shapes the book and leads it into the next part of the editorial process, which is called line editing. Okay. And that's when you have a, a, a manuscript in hand, you're no longer working just with concept or you know, or, or kind of in this case, they were working with Wilder's behemoth, behemoth of a manuscript, the, yeah. the Pioneer Girl. So now, now uh, Lane is beginning to really craft the story line by line, episode by episode. And that's the part where she's typing it and, and typing it and retyping it. And she tells her mother, oh, you've you're not doing that right. You've got to do this way and that way. And uh -huh. she became a royal pain, I'm sure, <laughs> for her mother. But but that's where you really see that Wilder was interested in learning how to become a fiction writer. Yeah. She really employed herself in that process and, and worked with Lane diligently to craft um, this novel. Because up until that time, she had been doing columns for the Missouri Ruralist. Was that the name of the paper? Yes. yes yeah, local is. paper and just kind of writing. Well, she was a, she was a weekly columnist. She, okay. She, um, she, from 1911 to 1924, she, she wrote okay. pretty much a weekly column. And so she knew how to write to deadline. She knew how to marshal those words onto a page, yep. and she does all that. And and we see that her first attempt at a novel, which most writers wouldn't want you to see their first attempt at a, attempt at a novel, but we're going to look at Wilder's, and it's rough in parts. There's right. there's no doubt about it. But it's at that point that Lane becomes the line editor. She cleans, she, you know, she she rearranges episodes. She gets her mother to add more material. Um, for for example, the the fall part of the book just was not fulsome. There was not a lot of episodes that when when Lane did the picture book, it focused on winter, late fall okay. and winter, and she had to expand it by fifteen thousand words to meet Marion Fieri's 
idea of the book. Uh-huh. And so Lane said, well, if I were you, I'd just go through all the seasons. Yeah. And start with what we got and go through all the seasons. Yeah. Um, which for, for Wilder was perfect because that's what she'd done in her autobiography. It was seasonal. What other projects had Fieri worked on? Would we be familiar with any of those other things? So what was oh, her background? You know, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure I have an answer for you. I don't know. She was, she worked for the um, Alfred um, A. Knopf yeah. uh, Children's Department, and okay. I just have not been curious enough to go see what else yeah. they put out in that time period. It's a troublesome time period to say the least i mean the stock market crashes in 1929 and the country slips into the depression mm-hmm. hoover and congress slap on tariffs that drive it even deeper and then we have the election of fdr in november of 32 and so all of that's percolating while they're getting this book done and that certainly i don't know what the reason why Knopf doesn't publish the book but you go into a little detail she she thinks she has a path to getting a contract and then, oops, nope. Well, <laughs> she had a contract in hand, um, in, in fact. This was in uh, the fall of twenty or 1930, and I, I think it's the first part of November, Marion Fury writes Lane and says, mm-hmm. oh, Knopf is closing the children's department. Right. I'll be out of a job on the 1st of January, 1931. I mm. just don't think your mother should sign it. It was a three-book contract. She would okay. do three books. And she said, I just don't think that would be wise. There's going to be no children's apartment here to manage it. And yeah. don't do it, essentially, is what she said. And um, so she suggested that that they send a telegram to Knopf saying, no, hold the contract. We're thinking this over. And... At that point, they at that point, uh, Lane was a kind of a little bit unsure. What Lane was very well connected in the publishing world, but she was kind of unsure what to do at that point in time. So she sent the manuscript off to at least one other agent or uh, person that she knew, uh, maybe others, but she just had no plan. But it's at that point that Marion Fieri um, decides that she's going to contact another editor. And she talks to Virginia Kirkus at Harper and Brothers. Uh, okay. They seem to hash this out in a cafe in the Biltmore Hotel in New York City. The yes. trade-off. Well, you're, yeah. you're out of a job and you have this amazing, interesting manuscript and you're offering this to me. And boom, boom, boom. They, they kind of talk about... Lauren Ingalls Wilder's book with she's oblivious to that conversation yeah she is yeah they don't know that's happening Kirkus doesn't say right off the bat I'll take that Mm -hmm. manuscript she says I've got to read it Mm -hmm. so she's about she's about to go travel on a train home I think from New York City I'm not I don't remember now where she was going but she's got this train ride in which she has to meet read the manuscript and make a decision and and she talks about going past her station because she was so involved in in the manuscript itself so oh so she misses her stop because she, she misses her stop <laughs> reading wilder so that's oh, well, that a good sign mm-hmm. yeah uh, it was a great sign 
Yeah. Now is this Kirkus, isn't that is that Kirkus Reviews? Is yes. it okay, yeah. so that she becomes uh, pretty successful at her, in her career. She starts that service, okay. the Kirkus Reviews. Um okay. probably let's see, I can't remember when she does that, thirty four maybe. Okay. Um she leaves Harper and Brothers to start that service and uh, her assistant, Ida Louise Raymond, takes over as Wilder's editor. Well, all this kind of brings up to line. There's been an awful lot of discussion over the past several years that, that Rose did more of the writing than of the Little House books than we were might than one might think with uh, without her name being on them and so forth. The Pioneer Girl Project certainly brings to life the collaboration between the two of them. As the books took off, does Lane ever feel that she needs to get a byline or a, a be on the author title page or no but see that's editors never do right right you know you have to understand wilder's the author lane's the editor this story is wilder's story um and lane is helping her bring it out of the bring it bring it out uh in the world um, so she didn't expect credit for it Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was not what editor. That's not where editors get their satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they are behind the scenes people, yeah. and R- Rose is definitely a behind the scenes person. But she is also a very forceful promoter of her mother's work. She's got the national reputation, and she brandishes it. Okay. She's pushy at times. She's a bully. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to getting her mother the publicity she thinks she deserves. So she's really playing those roles, the agent and editor. Now, she's a little bit disingenuous. She'll say things like, well, I don't really know where I come into this. Do you? She'll ask an editor or a, a, uh-huh. or, a, some, or a promoter or somebody. She comes into it because she's taken on those two roles. Um, she's an editor and she's an agent. Let's talk about the relationship with Pa a little bit. I, I was reminded of that story reading some of your book, uh, the Pa story to Laura about going out to hunt for deer and coming back without one, despite the fact that he saw some and he could have yeah. taken a shot. I wonder if you can relate a little bit about the crafting of that story into the book, perhaps, and then also... What is the enduring quality of relating that story? In other words, where's the value of, from Laura's perspective, or a parent's perspective, as they might be choosing this book to uh, encourage their children to read or read to their children, what's the value of that story? Sally Ketchum, uh, who has done some work on illuminating the little house in big woods and the writing of it and the the fairy tale elements of that story. She calls that the first happy ending of the Little House series. Okay. It's this very lyrical, very atmospheric um, view of the woods. It's the it's it's what Wilder called it the glamour of the woods. That yeah. the woods takes over and there's this it's that setting that is affecting Pa in the way it does, so that he's He's enamored and enchanted by the magic of the woods. Now, I suspect that anybody who lived in the woods had some aspect or some feeling about the nature of the woods. But there is in 
in uh, while I think a lot of the atmosphere of that scene comes from Wilder's aunt, Martha Coiner Carpenter, who writes about the woods and how wonderful it was to be out in them and how you lost yourself and you mm -hmm. became one with everything that was out there. And it's just a very, in fact, it's a very modern point of view about the the sanctity and uh, wonder of, wild of wilderness and the untamed forest. I don't know that she got the whole concept from Martha Carpenter, but Martha Car Carpenter does a brilliant job of illuminating that. And she did that in, paper, in a letter to Wilder that okay. she wrote in 1925. Okay. And it's pretty clear if you look at the topics. I mean, these were letters from Martha Carpenter are long. Okay. And they go into sugaring off dances. They go into braiding hats, making cheese, um, all these aspects that are going to turn up oh. in Little House in the Big Woods. And Wilder had asked her specifically to write that stuff out for her um, okay. so that both she and Rose could use it in their writing. So that's another source in addition to Wilder's autobiography, which is her main source, mm -hmm. there's also these letters from Martha Carpenter that are, I think, pivotal for this story. And then, to keep unpacking this scene, uh -huh. it's also, um, I think, a, a, a reaction, and, and, and Sally Ketchum uh, suggests this as well, that it is uh, has something to do with Salton's, Felix Salton's book on Bambi um, and the story of Bambi, and which was very popular. It came out in 1928, very yeah. popular at that time period. So, and the whole concept. You'll recall at the end of the story, after Pa's out in the woods and he doesn't shoot anybody, when they comes back, he tells this story to Mary and Laura, and they say, oh, Oh, Pa, we're so glad you didn't shoot it. We'll eat bread and butter. Yeah. You know, and that was a, 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 apparently a pretty common reaction to Bambi, the story well, of Bambi. That but, is uh, fascinating in its richness and detail and the kind of reverberations of what's popular at the time, right? right. In an effort to find an audience. You're, That's right. You're kind of playing on things that you know will have an audience That's and correct. provided with this uh, other person's detailed I mean it's kind of amazing to think that a six year old would know how to all the details about churning butter but if she does all that uh, as as a 62 year old doesn't have to remember what was five and a half decades before because she's got these other sources to kind of use based on her own memories. And another source she used she was not she she was the county extension services uh, was something that a farm as a farm wife yeah. she relied on and used. She used the information in the that they gave out too. She had written columns, like I yep. said, yep. <laughs> on a weekly basis for a long time. She knew how to find material. The bulk of the book is the kind of the side by side text, and the, you can see the strikeouts and so forth as you go along. What would readers find? useful about getting into the details of that to kind of note the changes as they went from one manuscript to the next? 
Well, that's a good question. There's a lot of curiosity about what Rose did and what Wilder did. And so you can see a lot of that in this story. You can also see just the kinds of things that we're talking about, how um, um, Wilder had to grow this story and she grew it by adding things that she took from other, you know, from other people's memories. Um, um, also, you know, her own memories too. Uh, she expanded those. You know, there's more than one uh, scene of deer in the in the forest in, yeah. in the book. There's two. You can you can just see her mind working about how to um, how to do how to expand this book. You can see her reacting to each of her editors with you know Lane, Fieri, and Kirkus. You can see that response to okay. the questions they ask. Um, and so I suppose in many ways I think my hope would be that people come to understand the editorial process better. Right. That they recognize that most stories you don't see the first draft. <laughs> uh, you see you see a well crafted, well polished piece. And what you're what you're looking at it, the first steps and some of the polish being applied. So you're you're learning how this process works. That can be quite laborious and quite tedious and quite exhausting. And uh, but to look back on it, I think uh, well, anybody who wants to write a novel uh, or perhaps any any piece of written work, poetry, whatever it might be, and to work with an editor to look back and say, well, here's this author who's got a great deal of prestige. She accomplished what she sought, right? And even she went through this rigorous, bruising process to get there. Yeah, and editing is a bruising process. Yeah. Um, you can't it, be afraid it, of the red pen. No, you can't. And you have to recognize that that the editor, I mean, I always say the editor is the reader's advocate. If the editor's telling you this mm -hmm. is too dense, this isn't working, you've mm -hmm. got to listen up because... Yeah. She's, and it's mostly often these days as she, but mm -hmm. she is um, is working on your behalf to improve that story. Where did you dig up all these uh, documents and so forth? What was the source material from? I know you've, uh, it's kind of scattered around the country, isn't it? Well, you know, not as much as you might think. There are two main repositories of Wilder materials. And one is the, the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library in West Branch, Iowa, which ha, uh, has Rose Wilder line papers, a large sex segment of which is actually Lauren Ingalls Wilder manuscripts, letters, that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, the other source is the Lauren Ingalls Wilder papers in the uh in mansfield missouri at the lauren Ingalls wilder home association and those uh, materials were uh microfilmed back in the 1980s that's a lot of wilder's roughest rough drafts um uh, along with all the correspondence related to her book on the banks of plum creek Okay. So those are the two main repositories, and then okay. there are smaller ones. 
one of the things we didn't talk about with publishing or a person, but you've, you've mentioned, well, you've mentioned it before the marketing, the promotion and so forth. How did they, uh, which, which starts when you're really picking out the title in a lot of ways. And that's the first kind of promotional thing that you do, I think is choose the title of the book. Why did they choose the title of a uh, little house in the big woods? That's kind of a long story. When Rose submitted it, Rose Wilder Lane submitted it for um, to the publishers. It was called When Grandma Was a Little Girl, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the first things Fieri said is, we've got to have a better title. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I'm sure, I'm sure something will suggest itself. I think how this went was that when they submitted the the edited typed manuscript in um, in the summer of 1930, they also sent a list of potential titles. I'm thinking Little House in the Woods, not the Big Woods, but Little House in the Woods must have been on that title list because when the first time you hear that name for the story is when uh, Fieri writes back saying we're going to accept we're preparing contracts we're going to accept little house in the woods okay and then that name was the name everybody used until february which is about the time the book was finally typeset it was and and laid out mm-hmm. and at that time what happened how it happened I'm sure there was maybe some thought involved, you know, a, a, a choice. But what they did was they took Wilder's typescript, the submitted typescript, and Lane had titled the first chapter Little House in the Big Woods. And at that point, when they put the title on the book, they just repeated that, that okay. title of that first chapter and... Well, that title evokes a great deal of sentiment and feeling and scenery and little house in the big woods. It sets up a contrast and attention. And so it's, yeah, it's a wonderful title. It's what Lane was was doing uh, when she deepened that whole sense of the woods and the predators and everything. So that's exactly right. Do you know how else they kind of uh, sought to market and promote the book? They did before, which is a classic, right before the, even before they had it typeset or copy edited, they submitted it to the Junior Literary Guild um, for a possible book club selection, to be a, a book club selection. And the Literary Guild accepted it right off the bat. They had 3,500 copies sold to the the book club members. Um, and what was Laura paid then for this? What was her first contract? She was paid $350 for those wow. 3,500 copies. And then her agent took uh, his 10%. So she got $315. Ultimately, do you know after they're all done and by the time she passes away, what was what was her royalty checks looking like? That was an accumulating thing. There's the fact that there were eight books uh, yeah. made those royalty checks pretty pretty ample. The, the way you know that they were really sufficient <laughs> is that about, I'm not sure when this was either, 
somewhere in, somewhere um, in the late 40s, early 50s, Wilder wrote her agent and told him to start um, dispensing 10% of her royalties to Lane for having helped oh. her in, okay. in, in getting the book. And at that point in time, you know, her reporters would ask her, newspaper reporters would ask her, well, are you going to do any more writing? No, don't need the money. This was Wilder oh, who okay. said, said okay. no, she wasn't going to do any more writing because she didn't need the money. Yeah. They yeah. didn't need the money anymore. They were comfortable by that point. Right, right. So now that's all 1950s sure. money, 1960s money. So yeah. it's, it's, uh, yeah. Did she get, uh, you mentioned that she had with Knopf originally a three book deal, right? Uh, did mm -hmm. she, did she get that with, um, no. No, no, it was a book by book. Okay. Uh, she, they, they probably had, now this is a good question. My guess is that they had first dibs on her next book, but they had an option on her next book. Um, they had first right of refusal. Okay. And so, but she negotiated every book. Uh, I should say Lane and then. <laughs> <laughs> Lane and, and then, negotiated every book, right? Yes, and right. then finally the um, the literary agent, who by that time was by, named by uh, George By, he um, he put it all into a contract for. I see. I wonder if you could talk about audience and maybe how audiences have changed. The the, the Little House books remain an enduring. A desirable book for children to read and for parents to read the kids. Um, what does that say about perhaps the timeless timelessness of the fiction that she wrote? She she certainly is telling a universal story about this tight knit nuclear family that everyone loves. Um, and would like to be a part of, frankly. I wanted to be one of the Ingalls girls when I was a kid. Um, but so there, there is that appeal, and there's this self-sufficiency going on, especially in that very first book, where there, there's, you know, food preparation is kind of the main story of the book. Yeah. And um, so there, there's a, the self-sufficiency there that, that's very appealing as well. Um, I, I always thought if I just had a copy of Little House in the Big Woods, um, if the world fell apart, I'd know how to get, you know, <laughs> make cheese and all those things. But, yeah. um, so there's some there's a lot of appeal in all of that. Um, but I think, you know, the world has turned. Things have changed. Um, it also records a period of time when people were not as self-aware about uh, the past and and what we should have, you know, we're, we're a more judgmental uh, generation than the generation those books came out in. Sure. And so there's a judgment about that history and about U.S. history that mm -hmm. that is is changing the way people are are reading them. Well, it tells us. Well, we can learn about ourselves that way too, then, doesn't it? Well, it does, and then we're we're a more diverse society. At that time, she knew her audience was mostly white. You know, yeah. today, yeah. 
the audience is 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 more diverse mm -hmm. and they weren't written for that diversity of an audience right. and they were written about a time when people had different attitudes about our history and, and right. that, you know it just doesn't resonate in the same way that it did right well uh nancy what's what's next for you oh boy that's a good question <laughs> <laughs> Well, I tell you what, I would really like to write an article about um, Wilder's last book, which was called The First Four Years. I have a number of theories about that, and I have, you know, I've really tracked mm -hmm. it as far as I can through the various and sundry um, archival collections, and, yeah. and I'd like to write that story up. That's that's article length. That's right. not book length. Right. I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. You okay. know, there's the possibility of, you know, going back and starting to look at all of the manuscripts that dealt, dealt with each of the books. I've been asked mm. various times, well, are you going to continue this? Are you going to do all the books? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm exploring the idea. Yeah. Well, hopefully there'll be some other opportunities just like this to help promote the book and, and get this going. So, and in some ways uh, you have said in the past that this is kind of modeled on the Mark Twain project and so forth. What do you, what do you think the Mark Twain project has done for and about understanding Mark Twain's books? That's probably another conversation. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously Mark Twain, when the first, when the autobiography, the, the project started before that, of course, but, when the autobiography came out in 2010, it was a bestseller too. Um, not maybe as dramatically as, as Pioneer Girl, uh -huh. but it was a bestseller. And it, I, I think people are just really hungry for the backstory of, of, of you know, American, iconic American authors. Yeah. And Twain was certainly one. Sure. Um, and I, I, Wilder is another. Well, yeah, we can look forward to understanding more about the 19th century, early 20th century publishing and the amazing women who put this book together. I just sure. wanted to say one thing I never got to say yet. And sure. that is, you know, you asked at the end of your list of questions, what do you hope 20 years from now? Yeah. What do you hope this project might might tell people or say? And so I, 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 I have to say this because it comes from my heart. Okay? Sure. Um, my hope is that readers will come to better understand the editorial process. And I've been an editor for over 45 years and editing in all its phases, I believe is a much misunderstood part of the publishing process. Editors are not authors. They don't deserve or get credit on the books. They are skillful craftsmen who understand language, and pacing. They can hear the poetry of each writer's own rhythm and help to make each author's story sing in its own way. Lane talked about all the under rhythm, the structure of the language and the poetry, poetry of it. And it's, it's that that editors hear even more so than authors. And so they can help to make each author's story sing in its own way. And when talented, they can analyze episodes, shift material from weak to strong positions, and help the author strengthen their own voice and story. 
and Lane's editorial work on her mother's behalf was nothing short of brilliant. Just as her mother's understanding of her story was profound. And as Wilder's experience as a fiction writer grew, her stellar storytelling grew stronger with every book. And as she began to understand the role of fiction in her story, the way in which it could speak truth beyond and outside of fact and embellish that truth, um, Wilder's writing became even stronger. But she's very smart, Wilder was, and she never outgrew her editor and continued to rely on Lane for the polish that editors provide, for the, you know, set for sound advice about which episodes to omit, what episodes to combine, and how to craft effective uh, openings and transitions. But Wilder was always the author, Lane the editor, and together they created a classic of American children's literature. That's what I want people to remember. Okay. 20 years from now, All right. or 100 years from now. Well, very good, Nancy. Um, <laughs> that's excellent. That's excellent. Thanks a lot so much for joining us today. And uh, I'm sure the listeners will have a, a lot to ponder with the production of these books and uh, hopefully run out and get a copy. We hope that uh, they can learn from that, that experience in reading it. So thanks, Nancy. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Been a, been a pleasure. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.